We've pretty much got the whole picture now. Kinda. Let's get started. Another race for the world's greatest driver, Juan Manuel Fangio. Former world champion Jim Clark leapt into the lead. That's Clark's Lotus going like a bomb. And James Hunt is the world champion by just one single point. By being a racing driver, you are under risk all the time. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. And that is Michael Schumacher ahead, the world champion. To become a four-time world champion, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, champion of the world. That's for all the kids out there who dream the impossible. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to episode 37 of F1 in Review, the episode in the hour where we discuss parts, the remaining parts of the Mexican Grand Prix and look forward to the Brazilian Grand Prix which is coming up this weekend. I'm Tom Claybon and as ever I'm joined by Tristan Fancourt and Angus Gallagher. A reminder that you can follow myself and Tristan individually on Twitter as well as the F1 in Review accounts where these episodes, once they've gone out, go out on that Twitter page on our profile. So do follow us to keep up to date with episodes present and past and um, the ones to come as well if you give us a follow more after. So carrying on from the last parts of the Mexican Grand Prix, Pierre Gasly, quite a decent race from him, qualified in P14, rose to P11 just outside of the points, but the more a talkative issue, I suppose, regarding the Frenchman is now the fact that he's got 10 points on his F1 license after the shoe has deemed he'd forced Lance Stroll off the track and also slapped him with a five-second time penalty. He is now two points away from 12. You think, well, 12... That's a random number, surely, no. But no, that is actually the total needed to be rewarded with a race ban. And this is in place until May, so this could affect him for Alpine in terms of the first few months of next season. Now, he's been critical of the FIA in the past after he was penalised for speeding under the red flag conditions of the Japanese Grand Prix, lest we forget, and for leaving too big a gap behind the safety car in Austin in the USA Grand Prix. In your view, could he get banned? Is there a serious threat to the fact that Alpine could be with one driver without their normal pairing come one race next season? Well, it was awfully lucky that Pierre Gasly and others, uh, Daniel Ricciardo, I'm looking at you, decided to have some interesting moments within the Mexican Grand Prix because feel for us, dear listener, although we had to watch the boring race, we've then got to make content from it. And <laughs> and to be honest, this is it. This is the content from the Mexican Grand Prix, I think, and it's in its uh, culmination, the final symphony. If you're like, whether or not you should have gone away with it, Pierre Gasly, I'm not totally sure. Um, look, I think he could definitely get a race ban next year. He is now perilously close as you outlined uh, in the beginning there Tom and Pierre Gasly has not had a particularly clean uh, season this year it's safe to say and look everyone gonna everyone's gonna make mistakes and I, I, I would say that penalty points you kind of get two types of penalty points for you get the I'm gonna dive bomb and try to take a place that I can't really take and you get that penalty mm. And then you get the other type of penalty, like, oh, you know, maybe you did something a bit silly, but it ended up being much worse than you perhaps thought. You know, you locked up your brakes and that's why you ended up hitting them. It wasn't because you're particularly malicious. It's just because, you know, there was a sort of a more of a domino effect, if you'd like, where we might say, well, yeah, you know, the end result was just the same, but the circumstances around it weren't so good. And as much as as many drivers will avoid the malicious i'm gonna you know basically try and punt you off the road and and get that place whether or not you like it or not sort of penalty many of them will get the oh i accidentally locked up and sort of hit other people sort of penalties think about bottas uh in the 2021 Mm. season when he decided to go bowling um at (laughs) hungry in the rain when he took out what seemed like half the pack um because he kind of made a mistake and i don't see pierre gasly getting to may next year without making some sort of mistake that will end up with a penalty of some sort and so i could definitely see him having a race ban and i think it would be unfortunate but to be honest you have to lie in the bed that you make for want of a better phrase pierre gasly has set himself up to be at this perilous position has he not and 
if we're if we're going to be you know honest, it's a very long season next year, and mm. there are going to be many many moments in that brand new Alpine car that he's going to be in, in which you know he's going to have to take risky decisions. Now, if you're Pierre Gasly, are you going to look at the amount of penalty points that you have and say, no, I'm not going to take risks? No, of course you're not. Because at the end of the day, high risk, high reward. And so I reckon, I'm just going to put this out there and I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, I reckon April, I reckon late April, he's going to get a race ban. Well, here's the thing. Mm. He has to get through five races at least next season without picking up any more points and the remaining two races this season because his he doesn't drop any more penalty points until May. For those unsure, you basically get penalty points and they last you a whole year. They stay on your licence a whole year. Um, and, then they, and then you drop them when it comes to exactly 12 months later. So he has to survive... Survive? Maybe others have to survive when they're rounded based on the penalty <laughs> points, but he has to get to next... Um, he has to get to next April at least, and possibly further into May. So five, six, seven races without picking up any penalty points. And it's weird because the things he's picking up penalty points for are things that's obviously they occur and they are like they happen. And now I feel like the penalty point system, like you said, Tristan, you get ones where they are race incidents, like dive bombs or uh, moves gone wrong. And there are others which are sort of smaller, not smaller offences, but ones like speedy under yellow flags. Um, ironically, he unfortunately got a he got penalty points in Japan when he was going too fast under the red flag, which then had the track out on track, which uh, he drove perilously close to. Not his own, then that wasn't his own fault at all. Um, but also, it's a strange situation because whilst obviously he's racking up these points, I couldn't. If you said to me about Pierre Gasly's driving this year, I wouldn't necessarily associate him with being necessarily reckless or dangerous or like over the edge and yeah he's just he's he's racking up points like there's no tomorrow he's literally just like keeping adding it seems like the last few races he's added one or two to his like his um his tally each time and it's very odd to think that because you wouldn't necessarily consider him a dirty driver or one who would pick up these penalty points but here we are in this situation it also raises the a debate which has happened before about the um the whole penalty point system in the first place and some drivers in the past have voiced their thoughts saying they think it's a bit like the system's not completely fair that it's not completely rounded or consistent um i think probably because if i could be wrong on this but i'm pretty sure it was introduced first in junior formula so in formula 2 and formula 3 so that drivers who might genuinely be a danger to others would uh, pick up points and then could sit on the sidelines for a race. And that's been applied in Formula 2 possibly this year or last year um, with drivers picking up points for similar reasons, such as yellow flag speeding, um, safety car infringements, instance, etc., etc. And they mm-hmm. brought it up to Formula 1, I suppose, to make sure that, I guess in the main thing, rookie drivers were conducting themselves well and not being overzealous and not stepping over the line but now you've got a situation where a driver who hasn't particularly gone over the line this year but has just had a couple of minor infringements with yellow flags and track limits um, and has also been arguably shafted with the penalty, the penalty points he got from the tractor incident in, or the almost tractor incident in Japan and you've now got a mm. system where a driver could be punished for being a li- for being a little bit careless instead of being properly reckless, so it raises an interesting debate about how much how we've had talk in the last few weeks about how with whether the super license uh, criteria are fair, considering Colton Herter, an IndyCar race winner, couldn't make it into Formula One. There's now a debate about whether the penalty point system is too fair and. It does come across as a bit harsh in some aspects. I can see the the merits of it, but yeah, I'd be interested to see what you guys think as well about what you th- whether the system is because realistically, Pierre Gasly just got one or two points for going off, or doing an overtake track on track limits. Now, surely every driver should get one of those, and there there should be more consistency. But yeah, it's a, it's an interesting one to to think about. Yeah, it's crazy to think, isn't it, that Pierre Gasly, a very experienced driver in the F1 paddock, could be 
the first in quite a while from my memory. I can't really remember any driver getting banned owing to accumulation of license points um, being banned from a race road. I can remember one or two from that huge crash in Belgium, I believe, around the 2010s where there was Hamilton and Grosjean involved. That resulted in a ban, but that was owing to the nature of the incident rather than accumulation. But yeah, Gasly could be banned, which is quite remarkable. And if you're looking at, Al- uh, you're looking at Alpine so far this season... Maybe this won't translate to next, but they do have a record of being slightly unreliable when it comes to their cars and not finishing races. We've seen this, for example, with Alonso, for example, more than Ocon, but Ocon previously when he was racing with Ricardo. So imagine you've got the reliability issues of a previous Alpine constructor coupled with an enforced ban of one of your drivers, and there is a real concern there. And as you say, looking at the calendar for next year, he's got to survive, be a very, very good driver until sort of Baku onwards. Baku is um, April 30th, and then uh, May 7th is Miami. So got to survive five races in, a, in addition really to the two that are to come in terms of Brazil and Abu Dhabi. So a very tight, sort of difficult tightrope for him to walk there in that regard. And you would have to say in terms of basic odds and in terms of how in some instances the FAA can be quite hawkish with some drivers versus others. For example, when it comes to Gazoo, I think that... Yes, it was forcing another driver off a track. He should have been penalised. But you've seen other drivers get away with far more, really, not be um, sanctioned or ridiculed by the FIA in terms of what they get from them post-race, during race, or whenever, really. So I think that raises a consistency about, or a consistency question, rather, about what the FIA deem as being forced off a track. Does it just mean literally crossing the line, or does it mean forcing the driver off a track into a, a position of jeopardy or, you know, a situation where they could be in danger? So questions there, really, but... um. Yeah, I'm quite surprised, really, that Gasly is this close. And it does raise, you say there, Angus, some legitimate questions regarding, uh, I suppose, the, the license points that are given out by the FIA. Could a driver really be, I suppose, banned for what ultimately is a subjective judgment on many different occasions? Because, yes, we can go and say that was a penalty, that wasn't a penalty, but we're in a situation, again, where it's not a a black or white situation by which a driver's getting banned it's somebody saying I think this is a penalty I think this is not and we've got to remember those making the decision at the FIA yes there have been two at the helm versus one previously but there's not a collective judgment so I think it would be harsh but it remains to be seen what the final I suppose incident is where Gasly does get that ban or doesn't really but um Unprecedented times is the way I describe it more than anything else. It's it's funny that you raise the 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 point that maybe we're being too harsh on Gasly and that you know it's quite an extreme measure for a series of of minor offences because I think this is a view that's that's shared amongst you know much of the F one fandom and the the race following population. And I, I do kind of disagree with it, um, and I will explain why in just a moment, but it, in answer to the question of when the last race ban was, I was this system was introduced in 2014, um, mm-hmm. I think, um, and so we haven't had very much time with it, and we haven't really had one yet. It's not the last race ban. The last race ban I, that I can remember is Roman Grosjean, in 2012 when he got banned from the italian yep. grand prix um and that as you say that was i think um you mentioned this one it was because of the, the almighty crash that that mm, occurred yeah. and throughout the season as well grosjean had a whole number of, of both minor and you know quite serious problems and so they went yep in 2014 i think it was 2014 um i'm sure you'll correct me listeners if i'm if i'm wrong about this um they went yeah okay we've got to have a system to to penalize the drivers if they are consistently bad or consistently break the rules and this is the thing about the point system it doesn't matter whether or not you're given one point or six points at the end of the day if you do enough of the you know of of breaking the rules you should get a race ban eventually and if you look at what gazi's penalty points have been um you know given to him for then it kind of all makes a sense you know it all kicked off his spa when he um collided with lance stroll which gave him two points he then collided at sebastian vettel in austria for two points he kept leaving the track 
for one, for one point. You know, if he only got that one point, then fair enough. He's not going to get a race ban. But when you combine it with colliding with other people, that's suddenly you're at five points. Japan sped on, you know, speeding under the red flag conditions. Doesn't matter the circumstances there. He was failing to be within more than um, 10 cars lengths behind the safety car. Two points. I, that's the only one I think is a little bit too harsh, actually. Um, everyone drops behind the safety car more than 10 car lengths often. Um, but they're not very consistent with that one. So perhaps, maybe, you know, we let them off there. But, you know, Mexico leaving the track and gaining an advantage. One point. What a stupid mistake. Why didn't the team tell him? Get back on the, you know, give that place back to, to Lance Stroll. Because at the end of the day, did he leave the track and did he take, you know, get an advantage? Yes, he did. Right. Penalty point. So even, even if, you know, we're very lenient and we say, fine, the safety car one was a bit harsh. One point. Then he's actually still two points away. Whether whether or not we like Pierre Gasly or not, he has consistently broken the rules. And yes, there is an argument that, well, they should be applied, you know, more consistently. And I totally agree. We had many drivers across the season leaving the track um, and not getting disadvantaged by it. And in uh, the US, I think Max Verstappen's like fastest lap, or one of his fastest laps was... Um, off the track but for some reason they didn't pick up on it because it's a a human checking the white line not a computer or a camera which is how they do it in play i think in nascar and in um uh, other sport in other motorsports as well they do it automatically and it should be automatic so we don't have this but that just because something isn't being applied consistently doesn't mean it's wrong to be applied and so the fact is, these things have been applied to Gasly, and therefore he is now in the situation where he is only a couple of points now away from a race ban. But he has had a season in which he has done some pretty, you know, silly things, leaving the track, gaining an advantage, and also colliding with people like Lance Stroll and Sebastian Vettel. Apparently, Pierre Gasly just really hates Aston Martin. See, in my view, when it comes to an accumulation of smaller points resulting in the Magic 12, if you will. I'd much rather there be an enforced pit lane start because, in my mind, that then evens out the consistency questions we have regarding the FA. because if you then have a situation where someone goes, hey, well, no, that's clearly 12 points because we remember in Grand Prix X, Y, and Z, he did this and go, oh, well, no, actually, compared to what so-and-so did at that Grand Prix as well, that shouldn't have been uh, a points deduction or indeed a points adding on to the license for that driver so in that regard an enforced pit lane start for that driver would be the best way to sort of sanction them ultimately finish off their race unless you're a Red Bull or maybe a Ferrari car this season don't know what next year's will be like but pretty much a pit lane start for any any driver at a majority of tracks is in my mind pretty much close to if not a DNF, a, a zero points race. But what do you guys think? Would that be a harsh enough sanction? Is that too lenient when it comes to someone like Pierre Gasly's what he's done this season? I still think that it's a bit harsh simply because I think you have to look at the the crime, which and his crime is it's not that he's a dangerous driver. Like Gros, Grosjean wasn't dangerous; he was just reckless, and he had lots of first lap incidents regularly when he was in a confined like wheel to wheel combat. But Gasly has just done a few little misdemeanors, which have just piled up. And yes, you could say he's like he's doing little things, but again, it's like the track limits thing, the safety car gap that he did. There's little things. It's not like he's repeating the same mistake loads and loads. He's just doing lots of little things. So I still think a pit lane start would be harsh. I think, but I mean, it's one of those where the debate will rage on. I'm sure and there'll be no there'll be people will disagree in terms of what's the best way to get the most out of the system but i still think that he's being a bit hard done by overall and it'd be the same for any driver i guarantee you and i promise hand on heart even if lance stroll was doing this or nicholas latifi i promise i would still be saying oh it's a bit harsh so i think that it's like not the best system personally Without wanting to put you on the spot there, Angus, what would you like instead of a race ban or a pit lane start? I mean, another step would be fines, perhaps. And, like, I don't know, probably, probably fines would be the best one. A different penalty point system where there's, like, a ranking of the points you get for certain things. Like, at the moment, it seems like 
it just seems to me like it's only two or one points you get for an instant and it's pretty random what how many points you get for each one it's not like oh this is a track limit so we're going to give you one and then this is a serious instance so we're going to give you three points it's just right that will give you two that one there doesn't seem to be any clear like outline of how it's delegated or how it's given out so either like fines or just a clearer penalty point system realistically would be what comes to mind well what i'd say actually is if we had a system where the fia it sounds to me, Tom, that like you want a system where the FIA can choose the end penalty. Is that, is that it? Is that, you know, you're saying, well, if we get to 12, the FIA can choose, let's say, force pit lane start, back of the grid, or a race mm-hmm. ban if you manage to get to that magic threshold by doing, say, quite a lot of major offences. I think it depends on the nature of the crime, if you will, because if it's, let's say, hypothetically, you accumulate all your points for exceeding track limits then that, in my mind, is not worthy of a, a race ban. That's worthy of a pit lane start where it's highly unlikely you'll get points. Very unlikely. But um, there is still a chance, a very small chance. But a race ban for something like that, where we've seen track limits be such a contentious issue where other drivers, i.e. I don't want to say those at the top, but yeah, those at the top have seemingly got away with it more than drivers outside of the points. That quashes this sort of consistency, biased the FI have an agenda type argument I hear because then someone is penalised but not the ultimate penalisation of being oh well you're not in the car the only, the only thing is often we we say that we want a system where you know exactly what the punishment's going to be and for for lack of consistency in other areas at least everyone goes into the season knowing exactly what happens when you get to 12 penalty points. It isn't a mystery, mm. and it's one of the very few things in F1 where we know the exact penalty. Often, if someone has an, you know, a crash, we wait to find out whether or not it's a 5 seconds, whether or not it's a 10 seconds. Is it going to be a stop-go? Is it going to be a drive-through penalty? And then, and then the, you know, it's announced, and everyone goes, oh, how, how could you... How could you set a new precedence when we had this previous precedence and the stewards this time are, you know, being biased because it's Lewis Hamilton or or whatever. I would like to point out that for all of that, we know exactly what happens when we get to 12 points. No matter what you've done, how you've got there, you've reached a threshold and you will get a race ban. That's what happens. And so whether or not you are Lance Stroll, whether or not you're Pierre Gasly, whether or not you're Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, or, you know, Nico Hulkenberg, whoever is in F1 at any time knows exactly what punishment they'll get if they get to 12 penalty points. Uh, and, and 12 points, sorry, on their, on their license. So I would consider for a moment that perhaps, although it's not the best system, it is a system which we can trust because we know exactly what the penalty will be at the end of it. And at the end of the day, all the drivers have signed up to this at the beginning of the season. They know what their the, the contract states. And going on to the other business for the New Mexican Grand Prix, Daniel Ricciardo, a quite a good race, really. I can't believe I'm saying this after yeah. the misdemeanors so far of this season. But qualified in P11, up to P7. Yes, there was that rather stupid move on lap 51, I believe, versus Sonoda got himself a 10-second penalty there. But super moves versus Alonso, Ocon, Bottas. And he's really making the car sing there, that McLaren. And that's DNF from Alonso, that two points finish in terms of both drivers of McLaren finishing in the points, means that now McLaren are seven points behind Alpine in the battle for fourth place. They laughed at me. They're not laughing now. What do you make about Daniel Ricciardo and his race there in Mexico then? A rather, hmm, I'd say, rolling back the years, would we say, of his um, ability in a car to make it sing and get some decent points. Hang on. Did you just say the words Daniel Ricciardo and good race in the same sentence? What? That's correct, my boy. No, but seriously. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, I know. Crazy. Um, but no, he actually he had an absolute stormer. Which is ironic because I can't lie. I wasn't I wasn't watching the race at the time. I was I was busy through other other means. But I was just checking the the live timing, the live um, text updates on the Formula One app, and it was said. And I I got to a bit where it said basically Daniel Ricciardo punts into Yuki Tsunoda. 
And I thought, oh, Daniel, 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 once again, having a letdown, just another race which is just going absolutely down the drain. Once again, I can't believe he's done it. Will this guy ever recover? Um, and literally, he did recover. Um, he's literally came back, absolute stormer, piled through the field. Put in perspective, admittedly, he did put put on fresh tyres after the pit stop he had. I think in the end, he got a bit lucky. He co- it coincided well if he had any damage from the collision with Sonoda, because Sonoda he actually ended up launching Sonoda's car, launching is an exaggeration, but he like bumped Sonoda's car up off the ground, um, causing himself a little bit of damage. And it timed well with him needing to make the, his final pit stop. And he went on a charge, and he overtook loads of people. He got past Alonso by the time Alonso's engine blew up. He got past Bottas, Norris, and Ocon. And then he also managed to build up, because he got a 10-second penalty as a result of the collision, and he managed to build up enough of a gap before he could be passed on uh, passed on the timings at the end of the race. What What is this? Where has this Daniel Ricciardo been, guys? Where has he been? He's just... Mm. Uh, even, even if it takes a set of circumstances where he has to crash into somebody, regret his mistake, and then go on a stormer afterwards... Even if it's taken that to produce his best performance of the year, then still, where has he been? Um, really, really odd how that ended up being the set of events that led to him getting such a good points finish. Um, but yeah, he's a brilliant little um, what's the phrase? Shot in the arm for for McLaren, definitely uh, in their battle with Alpine, which somehow they are still in, despite realistically Alpine having a pace advantage for most of the season. Um, Lando Norris has been taunting Alpine in various quotes I've seen in articles the last few weeks saying, I don't know how they're, how we're so close to them because they're so much faster than us. Um, but imagine how the way they would be if Ricardo had scored more points. That's another debate for another time, of course. But on the subject of this race, he did have an absolute stormer. He came through, finishing seventh, um, did the most he could because the top three teams filled the six places above him. So best of the rest, effectively. And, yeah, really helping McLaren's cause in a constructor Championship battle, which is still alive, going to the final two races. Um, and I can't really explain how he did so well, because he he just, something came within him, and he had a penalty, and he managed to negate that penalty by being far enough ahead, and he just absolutely smashed it. And I can't believe I'm uttering those words about him in this year of Formula 1, but there we go. Strange things can happen sometimes. But fair play to him, and let's see if it gives him a little lease of life going into the final two races. And then after that, he's not here 2023. And then all this talk of him, he's talking about getting a a seat for 2024 at a, at a nice project at a bigger team. Again, that's a whole other debate for another time, whether he'd be brought back in having had the two years that he's had. But yeah, it's, um, hopefully he can, for his sake at least, carry on this good momentum that he's built up in Mexico, carry on to the last two races. Yeah, it was an odd race really for Ricardo, wasn't it? Because on one hand, we had that strange situation where he got into a little fight and, as you say, got the 10 second penalty. And I guess this, yeah, this ties in a little bit, doesn't it? To whether or not you should be able to get a 10 second penalty and then also have success. I don't know whether or not you have any thoughts of that in a, in a moment? Um, because poor Yuki Tsunoda, you know, had a race ruined. I find it a bit odd that, you know, we're celebrating the success of Ricardo whilst commiserating Yuki because it really wasn't his fault that Daniel went for a gap that he really couldn't fit into. No matter what the drive was like afterwards, um, I think he was lucky, to be honest. But let's talk about, you know, what he did, really, which was he, he kind of did the thing that <laughs> George Russell wanted to do. And he stayed on his his medium tires for absolutely ages, and then jumped on a pair of softs to 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 bring it home at the end. Um, and that's really what Daniel's secret was, I think, at the Mexican Grand Prix. Effectively, tire degradation was incredibly low, uh, much lower than any of us suspected. And Daniel clearly had enough tires uh, tires left on those mediums that he could extend it and extend it and then jump onto the soft. So when everyone else went onto the hard tires, 
Daniel was on, you know, two compounds softer on a low degradation track, which gave him such an almighty advantage. In terms of the race time, it, it sort of predicted that he was 30 to 40 seconds quicker, which is a huge amount. That's how he was able to negate the 10 second penalty he was given. So I, I can only imagine what maybe Mercedes would have been able to do if they actually decided to split that strategy because Ricardo's living proof that it was it was very good. So does this mean therefore that Ricardo's back? Um uh, I I'm not I'm not sure. It was a good race from him, no doubt. Because they got the strategy right, he they were able he was able to, you know, really demonstrate what he could do again. Um but we shouldn't let it cloud the fact that Ricardo's had a pretty poor season as it as it stands. And, you know, he will sadly not be driving next year. But you know, as a as a fan of McLaren, as a fan of Ricardo, it was lovely to see him happy and smiling, taking those taking those chances and taking the well, well so many overtakes and eventually, you know, as I say, being more than ten seconds ahead, so he uh, he managed to retain his position. Especially when no, Norris isn't doing so well in the race. As you say, I can only th imagine now what it would be like if Ricardo was like this all season. And I think that's what makes it so difficult. Because I'm a, you know, I'm a big McLaren fan. I, I, you know, I love the team and I really want them to do well. And this is why it's so bittersweet, this sort of moment of magic. Because I just can't help but thinking, like, where the hell was this Daniel Ricardo? Why on earth did he wait till three races to the end? And if he if he didn't wait and it was just luck, well then that that's Daniel Ricciardo's current driver prowess. He's all right until he gets lucky and then he does really well. And perhaps we were so enamoured by the 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 clutch one two win last year at Monza that we actually over overlooked the fact that perhaps it was just lucky. And I I think that's what makes it really frustrating. Because if it wasn't luck, then it's disappointing because Ricciardo could have done so much better. Maybe stayed in the sport and brought McLaren, you know, some even more glory. And if it, and if it was luck and he's just, you know, not that good anymore, then this was a wonderful moment. But it cannot reflect his season as a whole. Yeah, I think the win at Monza, the 1-2 there, definitely did paper over some cracks when it comes to Daniel Ricciardo's time at... McLaren and also McLaren's last few seasons really because he was brought in with such optimism about what he and Norris could do but it's not really transpired in any fashion or another aside from one or two races but credit where it's due that was a decent race from him a, a scruffy race nonetheless but he was able to get himself some points there and it seems that looking at these sort of last few races it's very highs or lows for Daniel Ricciardo. Uh, a, P, a P5 finish in Singapore, for example, and then down out of the points in Japan and the US, for example. And I'm, I'm seeing odd parallels between himself and Sebastian Vettel in terms of this season where we probably expected a bit more. We're not getting that, but they're peaking at the sort of latter end of the season. And that sort of transpires in many ways in the fact that Vettel is P11 in the Drivers', the drivers Championship and then Ricardo is P12. But then again, looking at the car they're both driving in, there's no question that Ricardo should be a lot higher than P12, not below an Aston Martin, not below the Alfa Romeo of uh, Bottas, for example, and should be there at least with uh, the the Alpine cars and near his teammate. But that's just not happened this season, last season, or any season, really. And I think his idea, his ambition that he's going to somehow return like a white knight in 2024 and say, don't worry, lads, I'm here to save the day. Bring me back on a decent sort of wage and I'll <laughs> do the job is slowly fading really because he's not been at the races for this season last season he'll be out of formula one for next season so that's three years of being bad in formula one or out of formula one and i fail to see how there's too many teams in formula one in terms of the constructors of a decent caliber in terms of midfield to upper midfield so we're gonna go hmm Let's take a chance on him. Let's have a go with Daniel Ricciardo, not only because of his poor record more recently, but also the fact that he's 33 at the moment, 34 going on 35 by the time he returns in 24. And yes, we're going to get onto some news about a 35-year-old who is going to perhaps be making a return to Formula 1, but 
I think really in terms of the roles he's being offered now with Mercedes and Red Bull battling out for him to be their reserve driver, that's probably the best it's going to be for him now and moving forwards. And on that point, do you think that's a, a good move for him? Should he stay as a reserve driver in Formula 1? Should he return to his old team or go over to what was, what is, I suppose, his former employer's arch nemesis? What do you make of the fact that Ricardo could stay in and perhaps be, I suppose, the Hulkenberg, if you will, of Mercedes or Red Bull come next season if uh, one of their drivers falls ill or something happens there? Honorary Hulkenberg, eh? Mm. That's a badge that we, uh, yeah, well, that's unexpected, mm. isn't it? Really, I, I, to be honest, I think it's a good place for him, um, and it gives him an opportunity to perhaps stay around the sport a little bit longer and then come back in. That'd be nice. But again, I think he's going to struggle a little bit, simply because you're going to pick a driver on their merits, or you're supposed to anyway, and this season will not be forgotten especially when the options are Daniel Ricciardo, not currently with a drive, and his last season was, you know, all right, versus up-and-coming talent, new prospects, or nabbing a really good driver from another team. You know, they're, they're your kind of three options. Nabbing a driver, bringing back a reserve, or up-and-coming talent. Now, if you put those in the line, I would argue that Daniel Ricciardo doesn't stand a very particularly great chance at this precise time unless let's say he you know he he comes in as a reserve and absolutely does a knockout race and everyone sort of forgets the season and, and comes uh back to him and goes yep no we were wrong this is fantastic you obviously have you know you can drive the new cars however they're designed um and then maybe he gets back in the sport but i think at the moment the best place for him is perhaps as a reserve driver and, you know, there's so many other things he can do. You know, I could see Daniel, you know, helping with things like the the presenting, you know, having his, his, his he's funny, he's likable, he's charming, he's a good speaker. And there's no shame in having a great run in Formula One and then sticking around the paddock to, to create impact in new and other ways. I mean, the fans really like him. So, you know, he could still work with F1 or in F1 as, you know, pundit, commentator, whatever. You know, Jensen Button's been doing it recently on the Sky team. And to be honest, he's actually been brilliant. I've really, really enjoyed, like, Jensen Button. He he provided incredible insight at Japan. In fact, he made the, the Sky's coverage at Japan worth listening to because he was he was able to dissect it quite nicely. And and I think Ricardo could perhaps, not maybe in the same way that Jensen Button can do because um, he has his own approach, but, you know, that's not to say that Ricardo can also be a presenter, a pundit, or or something. I don't think he's going to leave the sport. Let's just say that. What should Ricardo do next? I think that you know what. There's been talk of he's got he's a very popular man in America. He's got a good American audience. That's obviously been expanded via the Drive to Survive avenue. Um, if I was him, I'd say, why not go try my hand at IndyCar or NASCAR, different motorsport series. Something which he can try his hand at. Something a little bit different. And, yeah, why not? Give it a go. And also, something which will help his motorsport ability, which seems to have declined with the greatest disrespect to American Motorsport Series. Um, something which can help him get his his mojo for racing back. So I think it wouldn't be a bad shout for him to spend some time on the American motorsport scene. Now, if you were Ricardo and the talks continue between yourselves and Mercedes and Red Bull, which one would you choose? Because not, we've got a Nick De Vries, who's the current reserve driver of Mercedes, leaving for Alpha Tauri. There's currently Liam Lawson, I believe, at Red Bull, but it seems that he's surplus to requirements. Would you go back to your former employer, you know, cap in hand, saying, I'm so sorry for doubting your ability. Take me back. Or would you go to Mercedes and go, hmm, they're a pretty slick winning machine aside from this year? What would you do? Well, what would you do, Tom? Because I I, I feel like you've, we've fed into it kind of a lot. What would you do if you're Daniel Ricciardo at this moment, as you're perhaps strung out a little bit? I, I would go to Mercedes because I think in terms of a pride element yeah. in terms of that sort of thing it'd be very very difficult to go back to Red Bull and say hey I left you guys 
for Renault and a decent pay packet because I felt, for want of a better phrase, you were holding me back because looking back at the sort of drive to survive narrative they were trying to paint, and I don't think Ricardo's words himself, you know, tore away from that too much. It seemed that he was quite frustrated, um, restless at Red Bull, wanting a different challenge and felt that the reliability issues from Renault were holding him back. And I think to this day, he still failed to see the larger picture of it was the Renault engine that was holding Red Bull back. Therefore, him going to Renault didn't really make a lot of sense. If it had stuck with Red Bull, then who knows where he'd be now. I think he wouldn't be the number one driver, sure, but he'd be in a much better car than he currently is now, having a much better time because, let's be fair, he had a great time at Red Bull, did so well with them, um, even in their sort of dark years, I guess, and even challenged them. Uh, even even got Red Bull to challenge against Mercedes, should I say? So going back to or going to Mercedes, not going back to Red Bull, should I say, would be I think preferable because it seems to me that this is a blip from Mercedes. They, by their own admission, designed a rather poor car which didn't really suit the new regulations. But now they've learned from that. We're now seeing Mercedes coming back into the fold. The last race, for example, they uh, qualified in P two and three and. They've obviously got the qualifying pace, if not the race pace, but they're definitely moving up the grid and can beat Ferrari now on their day. And to work with someone like Toto Wolff, Lewis Hamilton, a rising star of George Russell, for example, a well-oiled Mercedes team, which is, without controversy, a dominant force in Formula 1, I think that's probably his best scenario. I mean, the fact that you've got both of those sort of uh, behemoths of Formula 1 asking for his signature indeed seriously talking to him about that is an accolade to him and something he should try and grab up as quickly as possible because trust me if he doesn't do it now doesn't take up either of those offers then ultimately they're going to fall by the wayside and never come back so if I was him definitely Mercedes because I think that is going to be the force in the ascendancy come next year but um, Red Bull aren't going anywhere put it that way and now we move on to the other business outside of the Mexican Grand Prix. The second driver of Haas. The rumours continue to swirl around that seat. The latest is that the US constructor will announce their 2023 driver lineup this week. A reminder we're recording this on Tuesday, so if you're listening to this on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it's been announced, we don't know, but you do, so congratulations if that announcement has come out. And it seems it is a pretty straight decision, a straight fight between the incumbent Mick Schumacher and the former Aston Martin reserve driver, now a freelance driver, if you will, fans' favourite, Nico Hulkenberg. So what are our thoughts on that then? You either keep the young upcoming Schumacher Jr. or bring back someone from the cold who's now 35 years old but got a good record behind him. I, I tell you now that if it's Nico Hulkenberg and Kevin Magnussen in Haas, they are going to have a punch-up. There's just no way around it. They they hate each other. They, they, just, they just hate each other. I don't know why this is being considered. Well, I do know why it's being considered. Of course I do. That's a rhetorical question, dear listeners. But <laughs> the fact is, it shouldn't be considered if the team wants a harmonious working relationship. Okay, right, yes. Well, maybe they'll settle things and it's been a few years and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it hasn't been long enough. Trust me. Go back and look it up. Find out what happened. With the, the infamous, infamous, you can kiss my lower necessities line um, <laughs> from uh, Kevin Magnuson and... and uh, and heaven <laughs> and Nico Hulkenberg, you know, threatening to lay his hand um, in an aggressive manner upon him to strike him, if you'd like. Um, it's it's unfortunate what happened between them, and I just can't see them working together in Haas in in any functional manner. And that's a real shame for Mick Schumacher because I feel like he's if if he is replaced, he's going to be replaced by somebody that didn't really set the world on fire when he was at Renault. Let's face it. Never forget the uh, mm. the infamous um, Hockenheim race where Hulkenberg had the op- uh, the uh, the prime position in his Renault to bring it home on on for third place, his first podium in F one. Then he had binned it straight into the wall, and that's not the only time he's done that either. He is he's actually you know he's had these problems uh, where he's been unable to successfully bring home a sort of in-the-bag position, which is why he was inevitably dropped. And Renault and Cyril Abitabol, who was the at the time the team principal of Renault, before they turned into Alpine, um, 
you know, he stated that they gave him many chances and and that was it. Hulkenberg had many chances, couldn't really bring it home, so they got someone else. And I feel like if he goes to Haas, the same thing's sort of going to happen to him. Except this time, it's going to be Kevin Magnussen and Nico Hulkenberg trying to outdo each other every single race. And where I think Kevin Magnussen has a respect for Schumacher and, and they sort of have little battles every so often, but in reality they get on, I could see Hulkenberg being like, right, I'm just going to sideswipe him. Ah, who cares? You know, imagine like Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg, but t- turned up a notch to to quote Spinal Tap, turned up to eleven. I-, I could see that happening, and I think it's going to be really unfortunate for for Haas. And also, I hope Gene is therefore Gene Haas, that is, got incredibly deep pockets, deeper than he has now, because if he keeps crashing and they keep having problems, then they're going to exceed the cost cap. But maybe I'm wrong. What do you think? Do you think it's going to? Is it a good move? Does Hulkenberg deserve? to still be in Formula 1? Because I, personally, kind of counting him out. I mean, call me call me boring and call me putting a downer on things, but I think it's an uninspiring move, personally. I think that there's mm. better options out there. I don't know why they're going for Nico Hulkenberg. And I get... Well, actually, no, it's a lie. I do know why. It's clear why. Because they want someone there with experience, and they want someone who can bring it home more. They've had an experience with Mick, they've had an experience with Mick Schumacher, where you know they've managed to bring in someone who's raw, who's young, who they want for the future. But at the same time, he's someone who's had a lot of crashes, a lot of incidents, lots of pranks, and it's cost them money in the time when the cost cap is here. And they need to be able to save money. They've actually cost a lot of money by having him in the car. Not directly, but through him causing incidents and crashing. So it's a tricky one where they want to balance that with someone who won't be around only for a couple of years. But at the same time, I think that is Nico Hulkenberg. I forget, you forget life can pass really quickly sometimes as an adult. Such to the extent that Nico Hulkenberg is now 35 years old. Where on earth did that time go? Hmm. Um... Mm. but I think that's possibly the reason why he's not the right person because he's older he's had this is now he's had three years out of Formula 1 so he's had a couple of sporadic appearances like when he was substituted in for Stroll and Perez and he's substituted in for Sebastian Vettel at Aston Martin this year but he's had three years out of the sport he's not exactly he's a bit rusty is he not I think it's not the best time for him to come into the team and try and strut his stuff I'd, I'd say that they should be going for someone with experience but someone who like has more time on their side and I admit at the moment the grid the Formula 1 grid seems to be made up of either lots of young up and coming drivers or lots of older drivers there's not many in the 27 to 28 29 bracket oh wait there was Nick DeVries hang on what about him why didn't they go for him, thinking about it? That'd be one person who'd have been perfect. Young-ish, but got experience. Time to develop. About the same age, because Kevin Magnussen now, being 28 years old, as I believe he is, 28, 29. Um, bit more experienced, had been in Formula 1 a few years. 30, in fact. But still, not like 35, like Hulkenberg is. So... It's an interesting decision, but it also makes me question Haas's strategy. Why bring in two young drivers at the start of 2021 who'd been in F2 to say we're developing them with the future with an eye on 2022 and beyond for a car and for a, for a set of drivers who will develop with us? And then two years later, one, admittedly, Mazepin couldn't control the the, the tragic, unforeseen circumstances in, in the Ukraine, what's going on there. But then the other driver who was employed with an eye on the future is now being jettisoned before the future can even begin, quite possibly. Um, I say that with sounding with certainty because it does look like Schumacher will be put on the sidelines and Hulkenberg will get the seat. But it does make you question Hass's strategy. A bit of a strange one, I think. Mm. And it doesn't really doesn't really stand out as a team who want to progress up the grid because they're going to finish realistically either 8th or ninth this year after a bottom of the pile finish last year and after 
what, a couple of eighth places before that. It's been a while since they had that brilliant season in 2018 where they started off with an absolute belter of a car and finished a very respectable, solid, comfortable fifth. And it, if mm. they want to get back to those heights, you question why they'd be employing someone who's past their prime. Carries experience, but is 35 and has had three years out of the sport. Um, I'm not too sure about that one, to be honest, from them. Yeah, I have to agree. If Hulkenberg is replacing Schumacher, he's a solid choice, he's a competent driver, but it screams of panic. It screams of, we have to do something different because what's going on isn't working. Because you see Nick DeVries, for example, going off to Alvatari. You see Gasly going to Alpine. You see Alonso going to Aston Martin. Bottas at Alfa Romeo staying on there along with Guan Yuzhou. And it's like Haskell, oh, oh, blimey, well, we've got someone in, Magnussen, who's doing fine. We better go and do something different because everyone else is doing something different. So we'll do it as well. A kind of sort of domino effect of fear, I guess. And as you say... He lacks the wow factor, Hulkenberg. He's 35 years old. He's not got a podium. He's okay, but it's a very short-termism outlook, really. It's what Aston Martin are doing, I think, in terms of Alonso. But at least with Alonso, you know that he has won world championships. He's doing very well in Alpine. He's in the sport, but Hulkenberg is coming into it cold. Granted, he is a reserve driver with Aston Martin. He has raced in two races this season, but is he race ready as someone like Schumacher is? I don't think so. I think that they should keep on Mick Schumacher. I know there's been a few snide comments from Gene Haas about Mick Schumacher having potential but costing us a lot of money and you can't really argue against that but he is 23 years old. He has shown potential and the question is who else is out there for them to go and get who's the ripe old age or someone who, who they can uh, sort of nurture in. It seems that Giovinazzi is off the table that Ferrari wants to go and keep him as their reserve driver. You're then looking at someone like a long, uh, looking at someone like Ricardo, for example, who, realistically speaking, he's, comes with a lot of baggage in terms of uh, a poor record more recently, as we touched upon there. And then, I mean, who else is there aside from going down to the Formula 2s? And we'll get on to one Formula 2 driver who may be joining Formula 1. But there's no oven-ready, if you will, options out there aside from sticking with what you've had. And I think that sticking with Schumacher is the best option because, yes, he has many mistakes, but he's also shown potential uh, as well in my eyes. So it would be a sad moment for Formula 1 if Hulkenberg comes back and that's no disrespect to him it's just the fact that they're bringing somebody back because of what they've done in the past not what they can do or have done more recently and yes there's no doubt that the combination of him and Magnussen will be full of friction but I'm sure that they're willing to bury the hatchet in some form over another they were seen sort of shaking hands and congratulating one another or should I say Hulkenberg congratulating Magnussen post his fantastic points finish there in Bahrain but how long will that last moving forwards if things get a bit touchy and Hassa once again fighting in the sort of lower echelons of the points if at all so yeah, I do hope that Schumacher carries on because I think he deserves another year. After that, let's say if he repeats the season next season, then fair enough, he can go and say, well, you've, we've given you a chance. That's three seasons now and you're not producing the goods, but doing it now, in my mind, would be a bad decision. So, And also as well, I don't really see the, the pull of Hulkenberg from a commercial point of view. We know that uh, Schumacher brings in a lot of money owing to his name and owing to the sort of wealth that's behind him as well. Hulkenberg, in my mind, doesn't really do that, so I don't see the appeal of why he's doing that for on-track or off-track reasons. So, pray the rumours of Hulkenberg coming back as a non-reserve driver in Haas aren't true with respect to him. If I may read you, actually, a quote from said Kevin Magnussen, because I think it's quite interesting, um, because he was asked about, let's say, their, their disagreements, and he says... I think I've said many times now that I don't have a problem with Nico at all. Actually, I respect him as a racing driver. I don't really know him as a person, but certainly as a racing driver, I've always respected him, and so I would have no problem. But I don't have an opinion on whether or not he should be in the second car. Mick is doing a great job at the moment. He's had some issues at the beginning of the year and a few crashes, but he's certainly faster now. Do you think that's true? Very quickly, do you think it's true that you know he respects him? Or do you think he's just saying this stuff to to give the illusion maybe that it's going to be harmonious from your experience I think 
I think he could respect him, mm. but I don't think he wants to respect him. Put it that way. He, I think he wants Schumacher to stay in quite obviously, but it's one of those where he goes, "Well, if I have to go and have Hulkenberg, then we could make it work, but it's not for me, ideally." Mister Steiner and Haas. I think it's one where, yeah, he he probably he probably wants Schumacher to stay. Because really, there isn't a, there isn't a de facto one and two at Haas, but Magnussen is now this is his fifth year with the team, it, so he spent four years up to twenty twenty before he was then replaced. Him and Grosjean were replaced, and then he came back in this year. So he's effectively going into year six with this team. Probably feels pretty comfortable, um, sees himself as a team leader, and he probably would want that status or would feel that status would be better preserved should Schumacher stay. Whether he sees Hulkenberg as a threat, who knows? We he could we, we got we aren't inside his mind, so we can't fully say. We'd be speculating, but um, I still think yeah, it'd be interesting to see the dynamics between those two last uh, next year. Um, not that they're fighting for a world championship. I, I mean, I'd be surprised if the dynamics ruin the battle for eighth against Alpha Tauri and ha- and uh, Williams. But at the same time, it will be interesting to see how they get on and whether they can help drive the team forward like I'm sure that at the end of the day even if there is some um, background between different people in that team between those two they all should have one goal in mind which is to get Haas up the grid as quickly as possible what I'd say though and this is my major concern is yeah he might respect him but if you are right Angus and Magnussen or Argenberg starts to see each other as a threat then that is incredibly caustic. And you cannot have a congenial relationship between drivers when there is a tenuous atmosphere derived from uh, such a raw and powerful emotion as feeling like your job or, or your, your you know reputation is being threatened. And I think that's why Magnussen, like Schumacher perhaps, he hasn't necessarily feel threatened. But I, I I fear that, yes, he might respect him, but respect is one thing. What are you willing to do to save yourself in F1? And if Hulkenberg has only just got back into the sport, I would say that he would be pretty ready to do anything to defend his, his position. And we know how badly that sort of envy between drivers in the same team, you know, how that can cause huge issues. And, and I have to just raise, you know, Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. You know, they were friends before. They were good colleagues. And then there was sort of that threat for, for Hamilton that Nico could win the world championship. And also, you know, the threats that Lewis Hamilton could win and take it away from Nico. And then began the great fight that culminated with each other, you know, looks like a Barcelona when they took each other out and things like that. And even to this day, you can tell that relationship never repaired. And what I'm saying is they're starting off with a relationship that's already damaged. So I think it's a bold move, shall we say, um, for Gene has to employ um, Kevin Magnussen and Nico Hulkenberg. And I just wonder whether or not you're right that it, it is maybe from a team that's desperate to do something and I just I just think that you know when we spoke about Schumacher at the beginning of the season we said he'd take some two years well you know he's in a brand new car I I wonder if they're just kicking him out slightly too early and they do need him next year because he's only just getting up to pace for goodness sake and even Magnus has said it he said oh he's getting you know he's up to pace now but if that's true then surely the right move is to continue the momentum rather than to cut cut it short and give someone else a go and it seems that's all we've got time for in terms of episode 37 of F1 in Review. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end of this one. Be that on your preferred podcast provider or via River Radio, be that live or via the Listen Back feature. A reminder that you can follow myself, Tristan, and the F1 in Review account 
on Twitter, that is F1 in Review. No dots, no dashes, no nothing. If you want to go and search it up there and see the episodes of past and the episodes of present, and to also follow for the episodes that are to come. And as we mentioned there at the start, the Brazilian Grand Prix is up next. Uh, qualifying is on Friday. That's Friday, 7 pm. That's if you're watching or listening in the UK. We've then got the final sprint race of the year on Saturday at 7.30 p.m. Once again, that's British time. And then the race on Sunday at 6 p.m. Once again, British time there as well. No doubt, looking at looking at Brazilian Grand Prix gone by, there's been some rather interesting and tasty action there. And hopefully that will repeat itself for this one. And we look forward to discussing that next week when we speak to you this time next week, be that via River Radio or via your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.